you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, Epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6. This morning we're going to read verses 10 through 20, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Please follow along as I read, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray once more together. Now, Spirit, come and put grace in every stride. Uh, Give strength for every... We may run with faith to win the prize of a servant, good and faithful. Come and bless this time. Come and use this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the happiest days of my life was April 30th, 2016. My wife Jenna and I had the opportunity to visit England for a week. And though every day of that trip was great and wonderful, uh, April 30th was the best day because that day was church history day. Uh, That was the day that we got to go on a tour of the English countryside in Essex, and we went from church to church, uh, visiting various chapels associated with many of my theological heroes, the Puritans, men like John Owen and Jeremiah Burroughs and John Rogers. And uh, the best part of that great day was when we stopped in the small village of Lavenham in Suffolk, which is about 65 miles northeast of London. Uh, Lavenham was associated with the ministry of a more obscure Puritan divine named William Gurnall. Those few hours spent in Lavenham with my bride were among the happiest of my life uh, as we walked through this quiet, uh, idyllic, picturesque little English village. Uh, Jenna and I don't think about our retirement years in the way that uh, most Americans in the world do, but if we did and we could retire to one place in the world, it would be little Lavenham. Uh, it was during that little uh, uh, trip, that, that little visit to that small village, uh, I was introduced to one of the greatest of all English delights, and that is sausage rolls. Uh, stopped into a little butcher shop with beautiful bread and meats and all of that, and uh, I was introduced to the great sausage rolls of England. And then we went down a little ways to, uh, they have tea rooms in a lot of these villages, And uh, I don't know that I've ever seen my wife happier than when we stepped into this little tea room in Lavenham, in every way picturesque and uh, wonderful. And uh, that 
visit to that tea room in Lavenham was one of the most consequential uh, hours or so of my life because it was at that tea room uh, that I was introduced to Victoria sponge cake, which is the greatest of all cakes. And so we get there, we're seated, the waitress comes by, and she says, what would you like? And I said, now what is, what is that? There's this beautiful display and this beautiful Victoria sponge cake. So that's Victoria sponge cake. And I said, I want that. That's what I want. And then she said something to me that I will never forget as long as I live. She said, would you like hot custard with that? And then I said something. I've, I've never given a look like this to another person in my life. I just looked intently at this woman, and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I would like that. And so we enjoyed our Victoria sponge cake, our hot custard and tea and all of that, and then walked on the streets, and there were quaint shops and beautiful flowers hanging on all these little cottages and little buildings in this quaint little town. And then it was time to go down to the church that was associated with Lavinum, where William Gurnall had ministered at the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul, and it was beautiful in every way, and uh, right next to the church itself was a little garden, and then next to that was a neighboring field just covered with sheep, and so we were in no rush, and I said, well, why don't we just stay here for a little bit and just watch uh, the sheep, and uh, I don't know that ever in my life, I won't say that that was the happiest moment of my life, but probably the most peaceful moment of my entire life as we sat in Lavinum looking at these sheep. William Gurnall ministered in this town, this little village, for about 35 years, from 1644 to 1679. And from everything we can tell, he was a most faithful shepherd pastor, uh, relatively detached from many of the controversies going on in other parts of England, like London and Oxford, in those years. Now, we have very little biographical information about Pastor Gurnall, but he did make one seminal contribution to the overall body of Puritan literature, which has come down to us as something of a classic of the age. He produced a work first published in 1655 called The Christian in Complete Armor. And that's the title we have it now. The actual title was much longer. It was The Christian in Complete Armor, a treatise of the saints' war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of the grand enemy of God and his people, in his policies, power, seats of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against all the saints. A magazine open from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. You can imagine how hard it would be to sell that title today. Wouldn't do well, I think, at Barnes & Noble. But so long a title is fitting for so long a book. I have uh, the Banner of Truth edition, which was published in 1964. It's 1,240 pages. All a running commentary on the 11 verses that I read for you a moment ago out of Ephesians 6. 1,240 pages. They were based on sermons that he preached. So I have decided rather than two sermons, I'll do 100, okay, out of Ephesians 6. No, I'm not going to do that. But I ask myself, reflecting back on those still moments, sitting in the garden beside Pastor Gurnall's church, looking out upon a field filled with sheep. Why this man and why this theme? If there was one man to provide the most comprehensive book ever written on spiritual warfare, you might think it would be written by Martin Luther. I mean, his life was filled with turmoil and controversy and trial and noise and Maybe someone like John Bunyan imprisoned for years for his faith. And if William Gurnall were to write any book passed down to us throughout the ages, 
You would sooner guess the title to be something like When Peace Like a River or something like that. Not the Christian in complete armor. And yet this man, this humble retiring pastor ministering in a quintessential little English village gave 1,240 pages to the subject of spiritual warfare. In the dedication of his book, which was basically a, a love letter to his flock, he wrote this. The subject of the treatise is solemn, a war between the saints and Satan. And that so bloody a one that the cruelest which was ever fought by men will be found but sport and child's play to this. It is a spiritual war that you shall read of, and that not a history of what was fought many ages past and is now over, but of what is now doing. The tragedy is at present acting, and that not at the furthest end of the world, but what concerns you and everyone that reads it. The stage whereon this war is fought is in every man's own soul. Here is no neuter in this war, or, or no one who's neutral in this war. The whole world is engaged in the quarrel either for God against Satan or for Satan against God. Why this man in little Lavinum? William Grinnell, I believe, saw past the pleasant meadows, the beautiful flowers, the sausage rolls, and the sponge cakes. He saw past the stillness and the tranquility of little Lavinum, and he was able to see that behind all of that, in the spirit realm, there raged a war. And that so bloody a one, he says, that the cruelest which was ever fought by men will be found but sport and child's play to this. He recognized that the greatest threats to his own heart and to those of his flock would not be found in the quiet streets of Lavinum. They would be found in the spirit realm where each Christian finds himself engaged alongside of Christ in spiritual warfare. And so it's to this subject, not gonna preach 100 sermons, not gonna write a 1,200-page book, but in this hour, we can focus our minds and our attention on this most important subject that consumed Pastor Grinnell and his little flock dwelling in tranquility in England. We turn again to Ephesians chapter 6 to look at the subject of spiritual warfare. This morning we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17, looking mainly at the armor of God. Verse 18 brings up the subject of prayer, which actually is not part of the armory. Uh, Zach is going to preach in a couple weeks out of Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. This morning we'll just verse 17, God helping us. There are four headings I'd like to propose to open up these texts. Questions we want to ask of Ephesians chapter 6, Verses 13 through 17 are these. First of all, with whom is our fight? Secondly, what are our orders? Thirdly, what is our objective? And fourthly and finally, what are our weapons? With whom is our fight? What are our orders? What is our objective? And what are our weapons? So first of all, look with me. With whom is our fight? Look at verse 12, if you would. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Very plainly we see in these verses that our fight is not with flesh and blood, it's not with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or Capitol Hill or uh, the local association or something like that. Our fight is against Satan and his demonic forces. Our fight, Christians, is against the spiritual forces of darkness in the spirit realm. That is where our warfare transpires. Every human heart is engaged in this great warfare either as 
Pastor Gurnall said, for God against Satan, or for Satan against God. And so we should be thinking, our orientation ought to be as Christians, we are in a war, we are in a war against Satan and spiritual forces of darkness that are to us unseen. Their effects are every day seen, but the forces themselves are unseen to us and dwell not in the natural realm, but in the spirit realm. And Paul goes on to say in verse 13, he uses these words, therefore or because of this, so he's saying, since you know that your enemy is Satan and the forces of darkness, there's some things you got to do. There's some things you need to know. There's uh, things we together as a church ought to do and as individual Christians ought to do. So he wants us to have this in our minds, that our enemy is Satan. Our warfare is against him and the spiritual forces of darkness. And thus there are certain orders given to us by Christ. So with whom is our fight? It is with Satan and spiritual forces of darkness. Secondly, what are our orders? What are our orders? Verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The order and the command is quite simple given to us at the beginning of the verse. It is to take up the whole armor of God. It comes to us as an imperative, a command. It's our marching orders. Take up the armor of God. Of God, so that we may be able to stand in the evil day. I want you to notice that there's a a temporal element here. There's a a time element here, a time orientation here. We're to prepare now, to take up the armor of God now, today, and every day, so that we can stand then in the evil day. So, So we're looking ahead to the evil day, and now we put on the armor, and we prepare for the fight. So the idea is not when you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself in the heat of the battle, then take up the sword, then put on the breastplate, then don your helmet. No, it's it's, it's rather prepare now, don yourself with your armor, dress yourself uh, with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith so that when you get into the heat of the fight, you'll be prepared. We're looking ahead to... The evil day, no soldier arrives, no good soldier arrives in the very middle of the battlefield and only then puts his helmet on. The idea is we're to prepare for the battle beforehand. We're to prepare today and every day. Now just a simple observation here. This is not the main point of my sermon. But I want you to see, uh, recognizing that we prepare today to fight then, okay? Not every quiet time where every sermon that you hear is, to, is designed to address sort of a felt-sensed spiritual need. As in, like, if this thing that's in front of me is not immediately applicable to my life, I don't need it. Okay? Not every single time we read our Bibles or hear a sermon preached or read a good book does it address our current struggle. But we should view that all as preparation for the evil day. So sometimes you memorize a scripture so that you can recite it 30 years from now when you get that cancer diagnosis. Sometimes you listen to a sermon and you tuck it away so you can preach it to your poor heart when you're on your deathbed. Not every single sermon, not every single scripture is designed today to meet a felt-sensed spiritual need. We have to shake this notion that if what's in front of me from God's word doesn't meet my immediate sense of spiritual need, it must not be for me. You have people who don't feel an immediate spiritual need, so they think, well, I'm just doing fine. I don't really need to read God's word today or tomorrow. We're doing all right right now. Or, you know, we're doing pretty well. 
I feel like things are bad. If, if, if we miss out on church for a month or two, no big deal. We'll come when we really feel like we're in need, when we're in trouble. That would be to jettison and ignore this text. We come to church, I've said this multiple times, this place is an armory for the equipping of the saints. We come here to be equipped for the evil day, and you may not be in it right now, but it's coming, and you won't be able to prepare then. We prepare now. And so you come in the morning, you don't feel like you really need the Bible. You don't feel like a lot of problems in your life or trials or great sin struggles, but you still need the Word of God. You need to prepare for attacks you know nothing about. You need to pray for fiery darts that are coming. You can't see the forces of evil, but they are coming for you. And you don't know when that day will come, and so you prepare now to fight then. So whether or not you stand tomorrow may not be because you heard this sermon today, but rather because you heard that sermon three years ago, or you memorized that text last year, or you were part of that great Bible study in college, or you learned that song as a little child, and now you know how to shout it back at Satan when he comes with his attacks, when the forces of darkness seek to tempt you and to ensnare you. When Paul tells us in the text to take up the armor of God, he's saying work now, labor now to prepare yourself for battle. Take up the armor, fit yourself today so that you can stand tomorrow. There's a future orientation to this command. So those are our orders. Take up the armor of God to prepare ourselves. Thirdly, what is our objective? What is our objective? We've seen who our enemy is. We know what our orders are now to take up the armor of God. Now, what is our objective in the fight? Again, look with me at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. The objective, the goal of taking up the armor of God is so that we as God's people would be able to stand, to withstand the attacks of Satan, to stand opposed or against, to be able to resist him in the fight. Stability is the issue. Maturity is the issue. What's the goal? That I might be able to stand in the evil day, that I will be equipped, prepared, mature, stable to withstand the attacks of Satan. John Stott says this, commenting on this text, quote, wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. Would you fit Stott's description as a wobbly Christian? A Christian who's flimsy, who's tossed to and fro and is easily knocked down by the attacks of the evil one. Paul is saying our objective is to be able to stand, to be stable. Our objective is maturity. It's solid preparation and skill in battle by which we can stand in the evil day. Now I'm reminded of Paul's words earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, they were given to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. For what? For the building up of the body of Christ. And then Paul says, Ephesians 4, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. Could it be the wiles of the devil that we're warned against in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul's saying the goal for saints is that they would be built up, that they would grow, that they would become mature and stable in the faith so that when Satan comes and he 
blows on that house. He won't knock it over. We won't be tossed to and fro. Brother, sister, what is God's desire for your life? It is that you would grow and mature in the faith and that you would become stable. God doesn't find our immaturity endearing. He doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro, always vulnerable to attack. God doesn't want us to be wobbly in the faith, to be flimsy in the faith. We're meant to stand, and he wants to prepare us to stand. So Christian, please listen to me. You are meant to be more mature and stable next year than you are right now. And by God's help, by God's grace, you'll be more mature five years from now than you'll be a year from now. We're meant to make progress in the faith. We're meant to grow in the faith. We should become more and more stable, more ready to withstand the attacks of Satan year after year after year, God helping us. Christians should not be impressionable, impulsive or rash or gullible or easily taken in and so weak and frail. Strength, maturity, and stability are among the highest of Christian virtues. And I'll just add, they're among the most underrated. Stability in the faith. Maturity in the faith. Give me the man or woman who is unmoved by the drama and hype of each new circumstance. Give me the man or woman who is not constantly caught flat-footed by the assaults of Satan. Give me the man or woman who is unmolested by the storms of each new trial that presents itself. The man or woman who is not so easily taken in every time the devil utters some new lie. And he's coming up with new ones every day. Okay, the camp of Satan is a factory for new lies. Give me the man or woman who is prepared to stand in the evil day. Now there is some question about what Paul means when he refers to the evil day. I don't think it has to be that complex. I definitely don't think he's referring to the last day when Jesus will come again. That's not the evil day. I believe simply the evil day is that day when Satan comes with uh, attacks and assaults upon our soul. We know evil days all the time. When he comes to us in a pronounced way and seeks to ensnare us and to undermine our faith and to make shipwreck of our trust in Jesus Christ. We have evil days all the time when we're most vulnerable to Satan's fiery darts as they come at us again and again, one after another. That's the idea. When the attack comes, when the evil day arrives, and then we'll be able to stand. That's Paul's objective for us, to withstand Satan and the forces of darkness. So now, fourthly and finally, last question we want to ask. We'll spend a little more time here. What are our weapons for the fight? We've seen who our enemy is. We know what our orders are. We've got to take up the armor of God. We know what our objective is so that we can stand. Fourthly and finally, what are our weapons? What is the armor of God? Let me just say briefly as a disclaimer up front before we go through each element of uh, the armor of God. I do think Paul is using highly illustrative language. Okay, so I don't think we should make so much of the fact that truth is a belt and faith is a shield and the word of God is a sword. I think he's using language. These are our weapons. This is our armor. So, so faith, for example, is not just a shield. It's an offensive weapon. And the sword of God is not just an offensive weapon. It is also a defense for us. So I wouldn't make too much about each individual designation personally. But by the same token, I don't think we should conclude anything about things that are not found in this list. So Paul wants to draw our attention to particular things and give profile to particular things. He doesn't say anything about love. We don't have the 
you know, the, 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 the shoes of love and the helmet of humility or things like that. And we shouldn't conclude, well, those things must not be that important. These six things, they're the really important things. No, I don't think so. Paul has, in other places, written about good works and humility and love and all of that. He wants to give profile to these six things in this particular text. And so it's those things that we'll consider together. So what are our weapons? There are six of them enumerated in this text. Let's look at each one briefly. First of all, we have the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. We who are Christians stand in the truth. We have girded ourselves with the truth. We are to tie truth around our waist like a belt. There is objective truth, which is, of course, the truth of God's word. It's also a question of whether Paul is getting at the idea of subjective truth, like I'm a truthful person. I'm a person marked by the truth. I think he has both in mind. We are people who know the truth, and we're people who live the truth and practice the truth. You can't have one without the other. Now, it's interesting. Uh, we believe Ephesians was probably written in the early 60s. 20 to 30 years later, the Apostle John is living in Ephesus, again, we believe, and he's writing his gospel. So John's gospel is very late, comes to us in the 80s or the early 90s, and he's in Ephesus, and he's probably among many of these Christians, or at least their children, so a generation has gone by. And it's possible, like many of our children today, that after reading this letter in Ephesians back in the 60s, maybe some of the children were taught a song to memorize the armor of God, or were taught to memorize this text. And so those children who had memorized Ephesians 6, now they're adults and they're reading John's gospel. And we read in John 8 this, verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wait a minute. Reminds me of what old Apostle Paul said. I'm to put on the belt of truth. We're people of the truth. And then verse 43 through 44 of John 8 why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And here are these Ephesian Christians, children, now adults. They're reminded, we stand in the truth. And our enemy, Satan, can't abide the truth. He is in every way antithetical to the truth. God's people, on the other hand, are to be people marked by the truth. People who know the church and live and practice the truth, who have been freed by the truth, as John says. We know the truth, we love the truth, and we practice it. So my friend, you want to withstand the schemes of the devil. Make sure you are well-versed in the truth. Expose yourself to truth as much as possible through regular daily Bible intake, through scripture memorization, through Bible studies and small groups, through worship services, through sermons, through good Christian books. Expose yourself to the truth and then seek to internalize that truth and apply it to your life so that you may become a person who practices the truth and such that when Satan lies to you, you know the truth so well, you could say, I know that ain't right. When Satan comes to you, as he did to Eve in the garden, and says, did God really say? You can say, I know exactly what God said. I've been studying it for years. I know the truth. I've studied the truth, and I've sought to apply it to my life with God's help. And his lies and darts will bounce off us because we've girded upon ourselves the belt of truth. Christians are principally people of the truth. 
Our enemy is only about lies, falsehood, and deception. You want to learn how to combat him, immerse yourself in the truth, and by his grace become a person marked by truth. Secondly, we have the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What do you think Paul has in mind when he refers to the breastplate of righteousness? Well, the commentators are all excited about what the breastplate of righteousness might mean. There's two basic ideas they propose. Number one, Paul could be referring to objective righteousness, that is, an alien righteousness, Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us, given to us, and we take it to ourselves, and that's like armor for us in the fight. I have the righteousness of Christ, and that's supposed to thwart Satan. There's a second idea the commentators propose. It could be subjective righteousness. That is our particular individual growth in holiness and righteousness of character. God's people are said to be righteous. They do righteous things. They grow in righteousness experientially and progressively. Well, for reasons I won't go into, and it's okay if you disagree with me, I believe that it's the latter idea, subjective righteousness. It's not, not so much the idea that we put on Christ's righteousness. Christ has already done that for us. But rather, we're to grow in holiness and righteousness personally. And that holiness and righteousness, the more we grow in it, becomes like a breastplate for us in the fight. Now, there are reasons I think that. Ephesians chapter 4, the only other place in Ephesians with the language of put on is used. We're to put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 4, he says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're to put on a new nature, a new character that seeks to grow in righteousness and holiness. And then Paul goes into all these imperatives. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. Don't steal. Don't lie. Uh, use your speech to build others up and to give grace to those who hear. Be forgiving and tender-hearted toward one another. Walk in love. He gives instructions about how husbands and wives ought to regard one another, how children and parents should relate to one another, slaves and masters. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's a whole spiritual dimension to all of this. So as you're trying to grow and acquire personal righteousness, growth in holiness, know that that has a bearing on your ability to fight in the battlefield against Satan. That growth in holiness, that growth in righteousness becomes to you like a breastplate for the fight. So brothers and sisters, what's the implication? Your ongoing growth in holiness, in righteousness, prepares you to withstand the attacks of Satan. Is it any accident that the most godly people are usually the most stable? Is it any coincidence that those marked by righteousness and holiness usually have the most success in withstanding the attacks of the evil one? You will find this to be a general rule. Our progress in the fight against Satan will not outstrip our growth in personal holiness. Let me say that again, that's important. Our progress in the fight against Satan will not outstrip our growth in personal holiness. These things are correlated. You want to withstand Satan. You want to have victory over him and spiritual forces of darkness. I need to grow in holiness. Because in growing in righteousness and holiness, I'm becoming more and more able to withstand in the evil day. You want victory over the enemy. Pursue righteousness and holiness before the Lord. And that righteousness, that holiness will be to you like a breastplate. Now, I'm not encouraging confidence in the flesh. 
I'm not encouraging a lack of dependence upon Christ. I'm just trying to communicate what I believe is a very clear and biblical principle. Our personal growth in holiness helps us in our spiritual warfare. Why was Joseph able to withstand Potiphar's wife when she came to him and sought to ensnare him into an adulterous relationship? Was it just in the moment that's the first time he ever thought about adultery in his life? Or did he nurture and prepare with God's help and the help of parents and counselors what godly character and true holiness and righteousness was? And was he seeking to combat lust as a young man so that now when the evil day comes and he's attacked, he's able to withstand the attack of Satan and to resist the ensnaring of Potiphar's wife? It's a general rule, brothers and sisters, that when you see some great moral failure take place, you can almost guarantee that there were a thousand smaller moral failures along the way. Great sin and great failure never happen in a vacuum. The man or woman caught in an affair in middle age never dealt with lust in their youth and in their 20s and in their 30s. The man or woman who embezzled money and you think to yourself, how on earth could they ever do something like that? The person who gets caught up in rampant materialism never did the serious heart work of detaching themselves from money and from things when they should have. You know, brothers and sisters, this is a haunting thought, but Satan observes you. He observes you. He studies you. I mentioned that book, The Screwtape Letters, which brings that issue to light last week. He knows, brothers and sisters, that sin in your life that's just been dripping like a little leaky faucet or a leaky pipe. And he's looking for the day when he could burst those pipes. Just a little leak right now. But he knows about it. He's inspected the pipes of your heart. And his goal is to flood it with sin and with wickedness. He knows where you've been inattentive. He knows where you've been slacking. He knows the chinks in your armor, and that's where he'll attack. The greatest sin, brothers and sisters, always starts as just a little leak. It goes unaddressed. That won't turn into a bigger problem. I can handle that. I'll put a bucket under that. It'll just be fine. But one day the pipes are going to burst unless you address that issue. If we are lax in our pursuit of holiness, we will surely fall in our fight against Satan. So recognize, friends, that as you grow in holiness and righteousness, you are fortifying yourself against the future attacks of the evil one. And that righteousness and that holiness will be to you like a breastplate for the fight. More quickly now, thirdly, the shoes of gospel readiness. Verse 15, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Somewhat awkward phrase, the idea is we, we put on our feet these shoes, it's preparation, it's readiness to communicate the gospel of peace. And I think the idea is something of what we have in Isaiah 52, 7, which is quoted in Romans 10, 15, which I quoted earlier in a prayer. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now the text, this text, may be in Paul's mind when he writes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The word translated readiness and preparation is not found in Ephesians 6.15. But other words that are found both in the Isaiah passage and in Ephesians 6 are used. Words such as feet and gospel and peace. I tend to think that Paul is saying in Ephesians 6 that in our spiritual warfare, Christians are marked by the readiness to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel is said to be the gospel of peace. We as God's people are just ready to share it. 
We're ready to apply it to our own lives, to speak it to one another, but especially to share it with those who are outside of Christ. And it is the gospel that beats back the kingdom of Satan. It's the gospel that brings light into his darkness and advances the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the idea of communicating the gospel is the idea here. So Christian, as you don your armor for war, put on the readiness to communicate the gospel of peace. Fourthly, we have the shield of faith, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is faith, that is, that unshaken trust and confidence in God himself. It is like a shield to us from the fiery darts of the evil one. Such faith cannot be shaken by the attacks of Satan. And therefore, we should wish to go stronger, more robust, more established in our faith. Faith is that channel through which we receive strength from God. Faith is that look on God in our fight against Satan, and our faith is needed most when trial comes, when satanic attack is at hand. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, can your faith, your faith in God, your trust in Jesus Christ, can it withstand a cancer diagnosis? Can your faith withstand the death of a loved one, even a most beloved child? Can your faith withstand the loss of financial security? Now, why do I ask these sorts of questions? Well, when Satan wanted to shipwreck Job's faith, what did he do? He killed his kids, he took away all his money, and he gave him boils or some form of skin cancer or something like that. Satan was observing Job. And when he wanted to make shipwreck of his faith, he attacked him. Remember, nothing is under Satan. He's vicious, he's ruthless, and he will do whatever it takes to make shipwreck of your faith. Can you withstand the failure of a spouse to meet your needs adequately? Can you withstand the attacks of the evil one when he whispers in your ear to cheat your boss at work or to cheat on your test or to act in a way without integrity? I love what Curtis Vaughn says, he's talking about this idea that faith draws on the power of God, and he says this, quote, faith protects us, not so much because of any inherent power which it has, but because it brings us into touch with God and interposes him between the enemy and ourselves. There is ground for great confidence, not in ourselves to be sure, but in God and in the strength with which reliance upon him gives. The idea is that it's not the the strength of our faith that protects us, but the strength of the one in whom we have faith. And I love his language. When we believe God by faith for strength in the fight, we interpose him between us and our enemy and are able to draw on his power. In Matthew 17, after Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy, one whom the disciples could not heal themselves, disciples asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we have victory over the demonic powers? He said to them, because of your little faith. Oh, great faith can do wonderful things. Puts us in touch with the power of God and gives us victory over our enemies. Fifthly, the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. I think Paul has in view our present experience of salvation, our identity in Christ. We are those saved by grace, united to the Lord Jesus. The idea is salvation in its present dimension, not so much future salvation. It's the present awareness that I have been saved by the grace of God and I currently stand in that grace. One of the commentators writes, putting on salvation, this means to realize and appropriate one's new identity in Christ. 
which gives believers power for deliverance from their supernatural enemies on the basis of their union with the resurrected and exalted Lord. So I am Christ, he is my Savior, and I will ultimately be delivered through him. And that gives us strength for the fight, knowing our identity is in him and we're delivered by him. And then finally, number six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Looking on at verse 17, we take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul puts the Spirit and the word right alongside each other. The Holy Spirit is often associated in the Scriptures with the Word of God. As a general rule, my brother, my sister, you want to hear from the Holy Spirit? Go to the Bible. Paul understood the Bible to be breathed out by God and to be inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's the Word of God that makes all the difference in our warfare against Satan. So often in the Scriptures, the Word of God is seen as a a sword or a shield, or a refuge in our fight against our enemies. Psalm 119, which is one long ode on the word of God. The psalmist there writes in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, that I might not give in to the attacks of Satan. I've stored up your word in my heart. Your word's been a defense to me. It's been a a tool for me in fighting the sin that rages in my soul. In verse 105 of Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Verse 150, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. Spiritual forces of darkness. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. He's saying, I know the Bible. And therefore I can withstand my enemies. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. From your word, from your law, I do not swerve. Remember how Jesus himself wields the word of God in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when Satan comes to attack him and to tempt him. What does he do? What's his strategy to thwart the attacks of Satan? Three times he says, it is written, It is written, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He goes to the Bible and wields it like a sword, even Jesus himself, against the attacks of Satan. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Christians, this is sort of the fulcrum of the spiritual armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so I call you, Christian, master the Bible. Know the Bible. Study the Bible. It is the sword with which you wage warfare. Your news feed changes every day, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Trends and fashions will come and go, but God's Word is eternal. Listen, your errands and your busyness and your crazy routine will consume you. But you must cherish and steward time in the Bible because it is your sword with which you fight Satan and the forces of darkness. I know distractions, brothers and sisters, are all around us. Maybe we have never been more distracted than at any time in the history of the world. Wasn't all that distracted sitting in William Grinnell's little garden by his church. But man, we got sirens and notifications going on all the time. And I know that your cell phone and Netflix and Amazon and YouTube, they're oh so enticing. 
But there is something terribly wrong with a generation that knows so well how to steward time to binge watch show after show after show and can't find time in the day to study God's Word, to cherish it, to love it, to bring it to bear upon our lives, to prepare ourselves with the truths contained therein. There are some in this church who go weeks without giving any serious attention to the Bible. Now, how can that be? If Ephesians 6 is true, and you have this weapon, this sword with which you're to slay the attacks of Satan, you're to slay the spiritual forces of darkness, how can we be so inattentive to God's Word? I'm not a very eloquent speaker. don't have a broad vocabulary. But I've been trying to find some combination of words to persuade you of something of the urgency, the urgency of being in the Bible every day. Christian, you stand before Satan and before his murderous hordes, and you have one offensive weapon. It is God's Spirit-inspired word. Master it. Master it. Learn it. Study it. Comprehend it. Listen, I don't care if you have to change your work schedule, take less extracurriculars for the family. I don't know if you need to cancel your Netflix account, but listen to me. After you've clocked out for the week, and after soccer season has ended, and after you finally watch the series finale, you will have the Word of God. You'll be accountable to read it, to know it, to wield it like a weapon for your warfare. Christian people are Bible people. It's one of the most basic and fundamental characteristics of a Christian that he or she is a person created, formed, and shaped by God's Word. And when your soul, brother or sister, is lost at sea, the Word of God will be like a north and guiding star to you. When Satan has his foot on your chest in that great image from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, what are you going to reach for? Where's your hand going to go? Listen, Facebook will forsake you. Your 401k will forsake you. Even your family will forsake you. You must take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and that will give you victory over your enemies. Christian, without God's Word, you have nothing. But with it, you can withstand Satan himself. So I urge you, tether your soul and your time and your days to the Word of God, and you will be forever safe and secure. Well, there you have it, the armor of God. If this sermon has been inadequate or insufficient, there's 1,240 pages in William Gers' book. I'll just remind you as I close, brothers and sisters, my time is gone. But if we fight in the strength of Christ and with the armor of God, we have every reason for confidence. Not because we are so strong, but because we have been given resources in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we stand with him, if we fight alongside him, we must win. And friends, we will win. At the end of Gernal's dedication to his church, he asked this question. So whose side are you on? And I put that question to your heart. Are you on the side of the living God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you donned the armor? Do you have the sword of the Spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth? Have you equipped yourself for the fight? Are you fighting against Satan alongside God? Are you fighting against God alongside Satan? There's only two choices. Whose side are you on?
And I urge you, my friend, I'm telling you today to choose the winning side. There is coming a great and final battle. And in that day, the Lord Jesus Christ will fully and finally slay all of his enemies. Which side of the battle will you be on? I put that question to your heart. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the truths of this text are of great gravity and immensity. We have never seen Satan. We do not see with our earthly eyes the spiritual forces of darkness that rage against our souls, against our church, against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we confess before you we believe this text. We know that our warfare is with cosmic powers of darkness in heavenly places. We pray that you would give us strength for the fight. We thank you that you have already done that for so many of us who are your children. We pray that each person here would be found on the winning side, marching under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, marching with the armor of the living God and withstanding the attacks of the evil one. Help us to grow in grace and maturity and faith and righteousness that we might be even better equipped to withstand the attacks of Satan. I pray, Lord, that you would protect each and every one in this room from great moral failure and falling, and that you would protect our church from great moral failure and great scandal and great reproach brought upon the name of Jesus Christ. Clothe us in this armor always and protect us that we might be able to withstand against Satan's attacks upon our lives, upon our church. We pray that you do this for all of your churches in every place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.